0: Good evening. All righty, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 16, and we have been journeying with David, and it's been a rocky road. We saw the last few chapters that Absalom has risen to power, he has Worked his way into the hearts of the people. Remember, he was a handsome guy. He would cut his hair once a year and weigh it. And I forget, it was like five and a half pounds of hair a year. I don't know if that's a lot or not. It's a lot for me. Um, And it says that he was just, there wasn't a blemish on him from the top of his head to the sole of his foot. And, And I know a lot of you are thinking, what did he look like? we don't know. It's in your imagination. But what Absalom did was start going to the gates, start interceding for the people. Remember, the king was also the judge who would have to kind of rule over and make decisions, claims for the people when they had problems in business or in family matters. They would go to the king. So you can imagine David is overwhelmed. He's also getting up there in years and here comes Absalom saying, "Oh man, you've got a good case. If I were able to, I would, you know, I would make this decision in your behalf." And so people started looking to him, "Man, Absalom's there for us. David's not." That kind of a thing. And then all of a sudden Absalom goes to Hebron. He asserts himself, saying, going there with a chariot and people marching before him. And then he had everyone shout, you know, Absalom is king. And so it was made to look as if he was the successor to the throne, not that he was the usurper Of the throne. And so he connived his way in, won the hearts of the people, and then David says, We need to get out of here because he's coming back and he's going to kill us if he comes back. And they were David's mighty men and some others were saying, David, just give us the word, we'll fight with you. But David did not want to fight. Unlike his predecessors, Saul before him, who was so fearful to lose his reign as king, fought against David even when David wasn't trying to take the throne. And so here was Saul trying to hold on to something that God had already given to David, and David did not try and take it. And now here is David not trying to hold on to something, but actually letting go. And here is Absalom trying to take what was not given to him, but to usurp his authority. And so it's a very emotional picture. Last week we saw that David went weeping. Uh, We saw that there was just a lot of things taking place. A few people wanted to go with David, and he says, no, you go back. And you serve under Absalom because you'll be my ears. And you can tell me and let the priests know, Zadok and and his son, what's happening. And they can come back to me and tell me. And, And that's kind of where we're picking up today in chapter 16, starting at verse 1. When David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, there was Ziba, the steward of Mephibosheth. You guys remember Mephibosheth? Who is he? He's Saul's grandson, son of Jonathan, right? You got it right. And remember, he was lame. His legs didn't work because when Saul had died, they had picked him up to run him out because they were fearing that someone would try and kill him. And the nurse who was running with him fell, and something happened, and so he was crippled. And how did David treat Mephibosheth? It's important that we recall this like his own son, right? He said he welcomed him at his table. He said, you can come to my table. You'll be as one of my sons. He gave him all the property that belonged to Saul. And so he gave him just kind of, re-gave him, I guess you would say, all the things that once belonged to Saul. He's made sure that those are yours and you, your people will take care of those things. So Zeba is the steward of Mephibosheth. He's the one who's taking care of the land and all the things. And so here comes Zeba waiting to meet David. And he had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, a hundred cakes of raisins and a hundred cakes of figs and a skin of wine. The king asked Ziba, "'Why have you brought these?' Ziba answered. "'The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. "'The bread and fruit are for the men to eat, "'and the wine is to refresh those "'who come exhausted in the wilderness.' "'The king then asked, "'Where is your master's grandson?' "'Ziba said to him, "'He is staying in Jerusalem because he thinks "'today the Israelites will restore to me "'my grandfather's kingdom.' Then the king said to Ziba, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. I humbly bow, Ziba said. May I find favor in your eyes, my lord, the king. Now this sounds just very nice, doesn't it? I mean, here comes Ziba with these donkeys to give to David's household so they don't have to walk He's coming with this food to feed the men and some wine. Just, hey, I know you're in a hard place. I want to refresh you. And David says, well, where's Mephibosheth? What's, where's your master, Saul's grandson? And he said, he's in Israel. And now he hears that he's hoping to take over and to gain his kingdom. And so now imagine you're David and you've heard been so kind to this man, Mephibosheth. You've extended yourself to them where most kings would have killed him, slaughtered him, just to eliminate any possibility of someone trying to usurp and and take the throne back. David was kind and welcomed in. In fact, he said, never a night will go where he does not sit at my table. And then to hear that, well, he's staying with Absalom and he's hoping to get Saul's kingdom. And so it cuts David to the heart. And what David does is tell Ziba, whatever he had then is yours. Doesn't that sound just like, okay, yeah, what a terrible thing? You know what the terrible thing is? Ziba was lying. In chapter 19, we're going to see that it was a ploy. And isn't it awful that people will manipulate situations even when they're terrible, to have gain. We see it constantly whenever there's some kind of tragedy in the world. There's an earthquake in Haiti. And so everyone is trying to do what they can to help because of the hundreds of thousands who have died and are homeless and are suffering. And all of a sudden, these people out of nowhere say, we're here to bring aid to the people of Haiti, and they never do. They just take the money and run. And you think, how could someone do that? And people do that for every kind of noble cause, to save children, to stop famine, to help disease. People will use the situations to manipulate them for their own good. And what's worse is Ziba knew how to do it. He did it well. He came with bearing gifts. You know, here you go, David. Man, I'm so sorry, dude, what happened to you. And what's he doing? He's just working him. He's manipulating him. He's doing it to get his own. Now, we look at this and we can say, man, that's Zeba. But what we need to do is think about our world and, and how we live. And do we manipulate situations to make ourselves look good? Yeah, it might not be to the extent of some of the things I mentioned. We might not take money from, you know, the children in Haiti, but maybe we. Bend the boss's ear so that he favors us over someone else. You know, I'll take credit for this thing that was done well. And the boss says, oh, man, who took care of the, you know, the Ziva project? There's, you know, oh, well, you know, I, I did, you know, I wanted to make sure it got taken care of. And really, it wasn't you. It was someone else. But you took the credit because you were there and you knew you could. And so you kind of manipulated the situation to make yourself look good because hopefully you'll get the promotion. People do it in churches to try and get the pastor's favor. Not here because... I don't have any favor to give. You know, <laughs> cool. See you later. You know, I mean, it's not like you're going to get a promotion or uh, promotion or something. And so, but people will work things out. I- I've seen it, especially if it's a prominent person, a person who has some kind of authority or, or prestige. I- I've seen people just go and sweet talk people, and you know, I'm with you. I, I can remember this one situation. I- Oh, he's got to change the name so the innocent maybe, I don't know. So I just know that there are situations when I've heard people talking about other pastors and it's because they wanted to look good for this pastor. And they say, well, what do you think about this? And they know what he thinks about that. But they just want to ask him so that they could put this person down. And why are they doing that? Well, because they want to lift themselves up. Well, yeah, I I see things like you do. Me and you, we're on the same wavelength. Man, we've just got a a kindred spirit. There's There's a term you hear. Yeah, we're just on the same wavelength, you know, you and me. And there they are, buttering things up, trying to make things work out. And it's for their own sake. And that's terrible. It's terrible, but it happens. Or maybe you do it in family situations. You bend the truth you lie you manipulate the situations to make yourself look good. And poor David, his son is betraying him. He's had the death of one son who was killed by the other son because that son had raped his daughter. I mean, it's just ugly, ugly. And then this guy says, yeah, that guy you were really nice to, yeah, he stabbed you in the back too. And it's like, oh, great. Okay, well, whatever he had was yours. In verse 5, it continues, As King David approached Bahrim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family, came out there. His name was Shemaiah, son of Gera, And he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and all the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shemaiah said, Get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. So how's your day going, David? You come into this town and you're greeted with this. Here is this man from Saul's clan. So someone who was part of Saul's family to some degree. And as he starts coming out, he starts accusing David. As he yells at him, he calls him a murderer, a scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul. Now, did David shed any blood in the household of Saul? No. He didn't. But you know, once rumors take off, it's just almost impossible to stop them. I mean, we see that in the court case that's happening, you know, currently. I mean, gosh, who even knows what's true anymore? You hear these things come up from one side, you hear these things come up from the other side, and as you start looking into it, it's like, well, that's not true. That's not true either. What's going on here? And you even have the news media manipulating things to try and make stories. And you're thinking, this is just awful. And so once the lie starts, especially in that household, well, you know, David's the one who murdered Saul. Well, no, Saul took his own life. We we know that we have the account of that, but you can't tell that to this man or probably the person he heard it from and those people. So as he's saying these things about David... The Lord's going to repay you because of all the shed blood that you have made in the household of Saul. Well, that's not true. But then he calls David a murderer. Was David a murderer? Yes. He was. Some of you guys were saying no, huh? No, he's not. Yes, he was. It's amazing how we fill in the gaps of what we want to hear. You know, and it happens in so many situations of life. It happens in politics, it happens in court cases, and it happens in even how we see the scripture. Well, David's a man after God's own heart. Yes, but David was a murderer. He murdered Uriah. And so now David is hearing these things. Some of it isn't true, but some of it is cutting to his heart. Have you ever gone through a situation where calamity befalls you, maybe illness? And I don't know about you, but one of the first things that comes to my mind is, what did I do to deserve this? Do you guys think that? Like, what have I done? I'm being punished for something. Even though that's not how God portrays himself, I immediately go to those things. Oh, this is because, you know, I stole, you know, the cereal from my neighbor, or I don't know, I have just made something up, but automatically we think of the things that we've done wrong. Oh, this is because of the way I treated this person. This is because I lied to so-and-so, or this is because I did this, or in David's case, this is because I murdered Uriah. Those things start haunting you, and, and you see, a clean conscience gives freedom. A guilty conscience weighs on your soul, and it will do so for a long, long time. Because when you've done something wrong, even when you've repented and and said, God, I'm I'm sorry, and God has forgiven you, or maybe your friend has forgiven you, or your wife, or your children, you know, even when that's happened, when an instant comes up, your mind remembers the wrong you've done, and it haunts you. And and pretty soon we're afraid to move forward because we don't want the repercussions of what can be said against us. And so David hears these things, part of them, they're not true, but you are a murderer. Well, that is true. Not in the way Shemaiah had said, but he was a murderer. In verse 9, then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. That'll stop him. And it would. But the king said, What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and to all his officials, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. So David responds. This guy says, hey, I can kill him for you. And David says, this isn't your battle. And then we get an insight into David's thinking. Now remember, the scriptures are always accurate. It doesn't mean that what's being said is the truth. Okay, there are times when Solomon would say, you know, the soul dies and goes to the ground just like the animals. Was that true? No, that was just an accurate statement of Solomon's at that time in his life. And so David says these things about this man cursing and he's saying the Lord has told him to. Has the Lord told him to? I don't know. Now... Here's the interesting thing, just to give you guys a a little insight. Later on in the book of Kings, when David is about to die and Solomon is going to take reign, David says, you know, remember that guy who was cussing at me that time? They're like, yeah, I remember him. Shemaiah, kill him. David has him killed before he dies. So chew on that. David's not going to leave this man to probably have problems for Solomon. But here he's saying, well, the Lord has told him to. And then at the end of his life, he thinks back, he goes, no, kill the guy. Crazy, huh? Yeah, it's interesting. What is interesting is what David does at this time because of David's position at this time. And recognizing David's condition, I actually think it's a very noble thing that he does, that instead of him just retaliating and attacking this man because he knew he was good to Saul and his family, shut this guy up, kill him, David is actually that of a humble posture where he says, it's okay because part of what he is saying is resonating and ringing true. And even in those times of our life where we're in the pits and someone is saying things that maybe aren't all accurate, totally accurate, there might be things that God still ministers to you through their words. And David is being convicted in some way, no doubt because his son is trying to take over his kingdom, And he mentions that. He goes, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. I don't really care about this guy. I've got more important things on my heart. But what he's saying, maybe something's true. Maybe there's a reason God's taking me out of here. Maybe there's a reason Absalom's trying to kill me. Maybe there's a reason. I am a murderer, and I do have guilt, and I do have these things. Maybe... If I'm kind, that God will show mercy on me, so leave him alone. And I really admire that posture as opposed to off-with-his-head kind of an attitude. Because here he is, a person of power. He could have usurped his power, killed this guy, but he didn't yet. But he also didn't forget. He remembered him later on. Verse 13 So David and his men continued along the road while Shemaiah was going alongside the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went, throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. The king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted, and there he refreshed himself. Doesn't that just, can't you just feel that exhaustion? This is not just physical exhaustion. This is emotional exhaustion. This is exhaustion on every point. Oh my goodness. I just, I'm dead. I'm exhausted. Have you ever been there where things have happened in your life and maybe it's with family that have just drained you and you haven't slept for days and you've been worried about these things for months and finally there's nothing you can do and you come to the room and you lay down and you are just exhausted and that's the picture of david he gets here he's exhausted And there he refreshed himself. In other words, he was able to eat, he was able to rest, he's finally able to start regaining some composure from the events that have been happening to him. And so we see David going through some incredibly dark times. And remember, David's son went through similar things. And I'm not talking about Solomon, I'm talking about Jesus, Jesus also went through times of darkness. He went to Gethsemane and he stayed up all night praying and sweating, as it were, drops of blood, and they would not watch for one hour. Those who were closest to him didn't realize what he was going through, they fell asleep. And he said, Okay, let's go. It's time. And this is something that we see in David, but we also see that our high priest also has been touched with infirmities like us, yet without sin. He wasn't a murderer. He didn't deserve any of the accusations that they gave to him. But we understand what it's like to be exhausted like this, to be hurt like this, to be betrayed like this, to be used like this. And here it is in in the scripture. Verse 15. Meanwhile, scene change, Absalom and all the men of Israel came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. Then Hushai, remember Hushai is David's spy now. He was the one who wanted to go with David, and David said, no, you, you go back, you can be my ears over there. And Ahithophel who used to be David's counselor, is now Absalom's counselor. And, and what David wanted specifically was for Hushai to go and confound Absalom's counsel because Absalom gave good counsel. And so he was like praying, maybe God can make his counsel foolish and maybe you can help thwart that good counsel that Ahithophel usually gives. So then Hushai, the archite, David's confidant, went to Absalom and said to him, Long live the king! Long live the king! Absalom said to Hushai, So, this is the love you show your friend? If he's your friend, why didn't you go with him? He's talking about David. Hushai said to Absalom, No, the one chosen by the Lord, by these people, and by all the men of Israel... His I will be, and I will remain with him. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve the son? Just as I served your father, so I will serve you. He's lying. All these people are a bunch of liars. It's happening. And there it is. And he's lying because he's spying. He really is for David, but he's lying to Absalom in his face because there's this treachery going on. Absalom said to Hithophel, "'Give us your advice. What should we do? Sleep with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself obnoxious to your father.' and the hands of everyone with you will be more resolute. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Wow. Absalom asks for advice. Ahithophel gives him this advice, and this advice is extreme. And what Absalom is doing is pushing, or what Ahithophel is doing, is pushing Absalom to the place and to the point of no return. You see, Ahithophel has everything to lose if Absalom does not succeed. If Absalom goes back to his father and says, Dad, I'm sorry, it was my mistake, well, David might receive Absalom back, but do you think he's going to receive Ahithophel back? Probably not. And so Ahithophel is saying, okay, we need to make this stick. So we're going to do something here that will be so insulting that will push things so far that there is no returning. There is no way to come back. You have disgraced your father. That's what it means to be obnoxious in his sight. You will have shamed him and taken his own wives, concubines actually, but taken them for yourself. And everyone knows it. From that point, there's no return. And so Ahithophel is pushing pushing Absalom To this place because he's all in now and if you do this then he even tells them that you'll get some other people they'll see everyone will see and be more resolute yeah there's no turning back now we know you mean business you're committed so we're there with you because now there's no backing up now you're going to push through and so here we are we're going to go through with it and Absalom takes Ahithophel's advice. He listens to him. Now turn with me to Second Samuel chapter 12. Let's go back. Starting at verse 11. Nathan the prophet. This is what... He says, this is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And so we see that what Nathan prophesied has now come true. And it's come true, someone close to him, as close as you can be, his son. And what you did in secret, David, sleeping with Bathsheba, I am going to now bring open to you. The consequences of the things that we do, we can't escape them. We don't have to let them determine the rest of our lives. But sometimes you just have to go through those things. And we all, when we make mistakes, hope that the consequences of those mistakes won't be too great, won't be too devastating, won't be too costly. And sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're not too bad. Sometimes it looks like we get off kind of easy, but you never get off, you, you never escape. And now David is actually recognizing and paying, which is part of his contrite heart, which is actually a good thing, but he's actually now reaping the consequence of what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah. And it's coming to fruition and it's awful and it was told to him that this is going to happen. It's happening because this is what you did. If we would have the ability to see that every decision we make, not just the huge ones, not just the the awful ones that are you know terrible and just sinful, but every decision we make shapes the path to the future we're going to live. And to try and not bum us all out today, just as the evil David did has now cost this, what happens with the good that we do? What happens when we are generous and when we are loving and when we do invest our lives to to help and not to hurt when we are selfless and generous what is the future that produces what what will that lead to so many times when i'm talking to people who are single, and they're saying, you know, man, I, I really want to get married. You know, okay, yeah, that's a good thing. That's a normal thing. Whoever finds a wife finds a good thing. Yeah, that's, I'm all, I can relate. That's a good thing, you know. And then you wonder, okay, so what are you doing to prepare yourself for marriage? I'm not doing anything, you know. What are you trying to do? And, and, well, you know, I met this girl at the bar. It's like, okay. You know, you're, you're probably limiting your choices if it's at the bar. You know, there, there might be some consequences to that, or you might limit it yourself. And, and, you know, the odds are if you're at the bar you probably are going to meet a certain type of person. Or if you're a a selfish person or a very self-absorbed person, do you think you're going to attract a good person? Or when they're with you, they're going to say, that person is so stuck up. I want nothing to do with them. Well, but I got a good job. I got a good car. Hey, I'm good looking. You know, it's like, okay, yeah, uh, thank you. Yes, nice meeting you. And and then you don't realize that the things you do are preparing you to be the person you're going to be. And and if you want to have a a good marriage, then start preparing yourself to be a good person who can be a good husband, a good wife. Don't just wait for it to happen and then make, okay, now I'm going to be a good husband. Yeah, I don't have a job. Yeah, I'm addicted to drugs, but now I'm going to straighten up and I'm going to be good. It doesn't work like that. You have to plan ahead. And if you do, then you can reap the consequences. I just heard a talk, it was a TED talk about how 30s aren't the new 20s. And the lady was talking about how we've made this impression that, well, when you're 30, you can act Actually, start living as if you're 20, and she says, You can't. Biologically, you're not 20. The time is, the clock is ticking. You can't go back. By now, you should have planned those things and put yourself in a position where now you can start doing the things you wanted to do when you were 30. But when you're 30, you can't start acting like you're 20 because then when you're 40, you'll actually still just be doing the things that you wanted to do when you're 30. Okay, you you can't change the clock you still reap what you sow. You still live the life that you're paving the way for. So David has paved the way for this moment to happen. What are we paving the way for? What are we paving the way for and how are we going to get past it? Now, to give us hope, the Lord was with David. The Lord did restore the kingdom to David. David was a man after God's own heart. David did get to kill Shemaiah, the guy who was cursing him and throwing rocks at him. Okay, David did get to be justified in the eyes of God, but it hurt, and it was the long way. We can take a shorter way if we don't mess up like he did. Something to keep in mind and remember, we all mess up. Okay, we all do. So, now Absalom does this verse 23. Now in those days the advice of Ahithophel gave was like that of one who inquires of God. That was how both David and Absalom regarded all of Ahithophel's advice. Interesting statement. Was this good advice by Ahithophel? Come on, people. (laughs) No, okay? It's never good to tell someone, go sleep with your dad's wives, okay? Just, everyone agree, right? Let's all shake our hands, okay? But we hear this, you know, we hear that Ahithophel gave advice that was like that of one who inquires of God and we think, well, it must be good. No, they're just telling us how this man did have just incredible wisdom to see the situation. But this advice was not good advice. And, And what we mean by that is this advice wasn't in line with God's advice. It might have been good advice to usurp the throne and take over, but it wasn't good advice if you're going to be a person who follows God's ways. Strangely, Absalom thought he could establish his kingdom directly through this immoral act. And he was clevered and he was skilled and Ahithophel was as well, but they were ignorant about the ways of God. You see, God was involved with all this and that didn't come to Ahithophel's mind, this isn't right before the Lord. This isn't what God would have you as king to do. God was not a part of their thinking. And so they moved forward to just try and get things done. You got to do what you have to do. But they didn't think about the fact that God was involved in the situation. And now what you do, you have to deal with God as well. And so the advice was great if you didn't have this conscience in mine, if God was not involved with this nation, if God was not working in these people to establish a deeper and stronger work. And you see, the scripture is telling us these things to tell us why God is doing something and what God is doing. He is not saying that Ahithophel's advice here was good, but God is doing something else. God is doing something more. We're reading about David. We're reading about Absalom. We're reading about Ahithophel. And God is thinking about you, me, and Jesus. And God is going to work in David's life with David's shortcomings. And God is going to deal with Absalom, with Christ what he has to do to accomplish what God is wanting to do in the person of Jesus. And so now God will take all of David's mess-ups, all of David's problems, all of his issues, and he will still work things out so that he can accomplish through the lineage of David to bring about Jesus. And Ahithophel did not have that in mind. All Ahithophel could see was what was before him and what was going on right here, right now. But God was seeing a whole lot more. And so we need to see like God sees. We need to think like God thinks. If we would have a mindset that is broader than just our own desires, our own wants, our own focus, then we would make decisions that would be a lot better. If we would have that mindset, if we would think your will be done, and I want that to take place, God, what are you doing? What is going to be better for humanity and for those around us? How can I be A blessing to the people? How can I benefit? Even as we talked about a couple of weeks ago about, it's more blessed to give than to receive this attitude and this posture. If I'm not here for myself, I'm actually here to see the things of God take place through my life. What would happen if that was our mindset? Then what kind of advice would we give to ourselves or to other people? Ahithophel, that wasn't his mindset. It was just about, hey, if we do this, we can get power. We'll make it certain. Everyone will be on board, and then we'll just take over. And they forgot one little thing, and it was a big thing. And that was this nation was established under God's laws. God was working to accomplish something. And you're not going to fight against God and win. And they won't. Not to blow the story, but next week we'll see that they don't. Any thoughts or questions on this chapter? Yes. Now, I was saying that kind of tongue-in-cheek just because Shammai was a pain in the neck right now. Um, I think David killed him because he didn't want him to be a threat to his son, Solomon. I believe that's why David actually had him killed. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there were some people that God wanted to be killed, you know, and then some people he didn't. And, you know, we don't know much else about this man, except that David didn't forget, you know, which I I think is interesting. Yeah, and it was at the lowest point of his life. I'm sure it left an impression. And it might have been at that time that David said, you know what? No, that's not true. I was not, I did not shed the blood of that household. And that is not true. And I don't want that person going on telling that lie, you know. Um, should he have killed him? I don't know. I don't think I would, hopefully, you know, yeah, yeah, now he did. He killed at least him. Well, yeah, David had his hands were full of blood, just in battle, and those things. But the Lord had sent them out to battle too, at those points. so yes. where was he headed? Where was he going? I don't know if he knew exactly where he was going. I don't recall. That's okay. I don't recall where he's going. I know he, he was journeying before things stopped. We don't really see, I don't think, an a end to where he was going. So I don't know if he had a specific destination. I don't recall. But. Chronological order. Um, Actually, there were some parts that weren't, as we read earlier when we talked about the Ark of the Covenant. Remember David uh, bringing the Ark into Jerusalem after all the battles were done. And then right after that chapter, we go into all the battles. Um, And so that chapter, they believe, that was just trying to show that this is what was happening with Jerusalem being restored into having the Ark. But then, So that chapter, I know, was one that wasn't in order. But I think the other ones, for the most part are taking place. You know, I don't recall in reading it showing there being another detachment of order. So not that I'm aware of. I think that, that Saul had sons that were around, you know, still, because David didn't slaughter them, you know, and he did have people there. There was even the one man who tried to become the king, you know, and, and, wasn't and it says he was a son of Saul so Saul had a number of sons and we don't have all their names and so I think it very well might have been just another situation you know because Saul yeah Saul didn't do too well and so David might have known some other sons I don't recall that being a different you know referring to back at a different place though any other questions because they're full of questions today any thoughts Definitely stands out. I think the point of his beauty was that he was able to win the hearts of the people. You know, I think everyone's like, ooh, he's good. You know, he's easy on the eyes. You know, so people liked him. I think that was the point, but yeah, we definitely see this rotten character. Definitely. We are here for a purpose, but that doesn't mean that what we do is God's intention, or our purpose is, or God's purpose for us are the things that we do. We are here for a purpose, and the scripture tells us, he has shown you, O man, what is good, and what the Lord requires of you, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. That's, That's what God wants for us. Now, when we don't do that, then our purpose is being tainted. Our purpose is being kind of hijacked by our actions. So you were here, you were created to do good works that God wants you to live in, and that's God's desire for everyone. But when a person chooses to murder or to rape, they're not walking in God's will, and God's desire or plan isn't that they do those things. They are making the choices that they want to do, and they do those things. And that's not part of the plan. That's not part of God's plan. That's part of their plan. And God works in spite of those things. And God is merciful in spite of those things. But the plan isn't, you know, it's like everything happens for a reason. Well, sometimes the reason is because you were dumb and you did something dumb. You know, the reason isn't because God was behind it. The reason was because you chose to do it. The biggest thing that I I see and one of the problems that we don't face is that our choices are they have just eternal consequences. The things that we do really do matter, and we, we want God to give us freedom, but then we don't want God to hold us accountable for the freedom that we have. You know what I'm saying? It's like, God, I want to be free to make my own choices. Okay, you've made this choice, and this choice does not include me. And so now you're separated from me. And now when you die, you're separated from me. And you're saying, God, that's not fair. Well, you wanted to make the choice. You made a choice that didn't include me. And now you want me to not accept your choice. And so we're saying, God, I want my freedom, but not really. I just want my freedom, but I don't want to be responsible for the consequences of my freedom. And God has given us freedom, but he hasn't given us freedom from the consequences of the things that we do. And so, you know, the things that are happening, yeah, God works in spite of them, but it's not God's plan for someone to be a murderer Well, it is complicated. You know, I mean, when people uh, do something, say murder, you know, if I murdered someone and then I became a follower of Jesus, you know, and I like, wow, God, forgive me. I believe God is going to forgive me. What that means is I'm not going to be eternally held accountable for the wrong I did. But you know what? I still need to be accountable for the wrong I did. And I think as a follower of Christ, what I would do is want to go and confess and say, hey, I did this. I deserve the consequences. You know, if it's prison, if it's death, I accept the responsibility for the things that I've done. But I know I've been forgiven beyond that. And God's grace is further than we can imagine, and it stoops lower than we can go. But there's the consequences, what we, you know, we reap, what we sow. And so. We need to be careful that just because things aren't just in our world, people get away with it, quote. No one really gets away with that. It will have an effect on their life here as well as eternally. You know, the people who cheat and steal and kill, they do not really live the life that is abundant that jesus talks about they exist and they're missing out on what life really is to a large extent and then when they die they will find out how far they've missed that life but it starts here it's not like you know you get away with it here cuz you've got the house you've got the car and you've got all the things and you're not in jail you know and you get away with it Most of those people are probably very miserable and haunted people and tormented. You can't be like that and not be damaged. You know, what kind of real relationship does a murderer have with his children? Does he have children? You know, can he have a good relationship when he's got this going on? I mean, it affects everything. And so the reaping of what we sow starts immediately. But then it shows up more and more as we get go on from here. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, that's a good question. Well, or themselves. I mean, um, you know, Satan has definitely deceived mankind and is involved with the, the wickedness in the world. But I think uh, we can do a lot of damage without him just all by ourselves. And so, not necessarily that they're following Satan, but they're living according to his ways. So, he could say they're following him in that way. But you see, they're still responsible for their choices. Those are their choices, not Satan's. You know what I'm saying? And, and so, um, this idea of the devil, you know, made me do it. No, you did it. You know, it's more in line with how the devil does things. Maybe you're a liar or thief, those kinds of things. But. Those are your choices. He can't force you just like God doesn't force you. And so, yeah, no, I think we need to understand that a purpose has to do more with intent than actual events. You know, God has a purpose for us. In other words, we are here because we have the image of God within us. And we were created in God's image, and we were created to act the way God would act towards people that doesn't mean we're guaranteed to live a full life it doesn't mean we're not going to get cancer it doesn't mean we're not going to you know be murdered or have other tragedy happen to us we we can't guarantee how that plays out but the intent is still you were created for a purpose to do these things and even if you don't have the ability to live out the fullness of your life you still had the intent there You know, because the reason you know she was in a car accident had to do with another driver, and what happened with that other driver, or how she was driving, or malfunction in the car, and it involves a whole lot of things. So it's difficult to say. Well, it's you know God's fault that all these things happen because there's so many things involved with that. God know about it. Yeah, God knows about those things, but the intent for her was always for her to live out her life in his image. And if that life is cut short, well, we're still responsible for the time we have to live how we can with what we have, but we're not guaranteed tomorrow. Um, James tells us our life is like a vapor. One day we're here and then we're gone. Tomorrow isn't promised to any of us because we live in a world where things happen, you know? and. It's not like God makes those things happen, but they're going to happen. And sometimes, you know, life is cut way too short, at least in our eyes. Um, but we still are intended to live a life that is good. And, and it doesn't mean that she didn't have a life of purpose, even though it was cut short. She still could have had a life that had meaning and purpose. I mean, she's got children now, and that, who knows how that's going to you know, change the rest of the world. I mean, it's really amazing the acts that one person does, and we never see all the rippling effect of that. And so who knows what these children will become? Oh, it's horrific. You know, it's just tragic. And there's, I don't understand it fully, you know, and remembering that we live in a world that is broken, that is fallen, and terrible things happen all the time. You know, I know Children who get cancer it's like why that just doesn't seem right. Well, we live in a broken world. Romans eight tells us that the creation groans as a woman in childbirth because of the corruption that is in the world. You know that actually the the sin that we do and live in has an effect on nature itself and on our biology and on the world around us. Um, And so there's the ramifications to that end. And, you know, we live in this broken and sick world, and things happen that aren't, you know, aren't good. And it's hard to understand. But we have to recognize the condition of the world that we're living in. And you know, why those things happen are really because of how we live our lives until redemption happens. That's why we all die. I mean, it doesn't matter if you live to be 90 or 20, you're going to die, you know, and it doesn't matter if you're healed like Lazarus, he still died. He's not walking around somewhere, you know, still he's somewhere well, when I say cut short, it's from our terms. You know, we expect a person to live a longer life. Cut short in our mind means, well, we expect a person to live, you know, 70, 80. Depends. I don't know how old they're supposed to live. Hopefully it's a while more because, you know, it gets closer and closer. So when I say cut short, and it's in our eyes and from our standards. You know, of what we know a person normally lives, I think, 73 or something. I don't know. Depends on the country you're in. But that's what I mean by cut short our lives are of infinite value, regardless of how long we live. You know, I always think about this, and you know, the families I know that have children with special needs, those children will not usually amount to a lot society-wise, they will not accomplish a lot, but those children usually have more of a Effect on the character of those families than anyone else for, for the good. They shape the character of those families in ways no one else and nothing else could. And so here you have a child who's in a wheelchair, who can't talk, can't converse, and he has shaped the character of the entire family for the benefit. I don't think we recognize the potential that we have to do good, and I think God sometimes takes these examples and says, see this person, they can't do anything, but they do more than you can imagine. What would happen if you really had intention to do good and be a person, a character that would shape the people around you, you know? And so all, all of us are, are given this potential. I mean, we have this gift of God in us that we need to recognize, that we need to surrender to, you know, that we need to acknowledge, that we need to repent and turn to and yield to so that God who's created us can actually be our Lord. Because the potential in us is amazing for incredible good or incredible evil. And it really is who we will yield to and how we will yield. Um, I don't know if that helps, but you know, I just see that we have the ability to do more than we really imagine. And if we would recognize that and give ourselves to that, we could do a lot, even if our lives are only, you know, here for a short time. Wow, well, this turned heavy. Yeah. And then here's the question. Did Eve have any children before the fall? Before the fall? Before she ate the apple? Just question. It doesn't say. <laughs> but there's that letter. Later on, there are the chapter where it talks about the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were good. Who are the sons of God? Just a thought. There's, a, You see, my whole point is there's a whole lot in Scripture we don't really understand. You know, Genesis wasn't there to explain scientifically how the world was created. It was there to tell us why things happened. Okay, well, before we keep going, and who knows where we'll end up now, now we're... <laughs> anyway, let's pray. <laughs> Lord, thank you for the conversation and for, Lord, how your scriptures provoke thought, how it causes us to examine our lives and life overall, that we are enticed by your spirit to ponder and to think about your workings in human history, and in our history, and in our lives. And Lord, I pray that we'd continue to ponder, we'd continue to think these things, we would continue to pursue after you, and Lord, live lives that will honor you. Lord, we are given an incredible gift of life, and Lord, you are the author of life, and may we yield ourselves to you that we might have life to the full even as you've come to give it to us, Jesus. As we surrender ourselves to you, you lift us up, Lord. You equip us, empower us, and Lord, give us direction, we pray. We do thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.